Hey everyone, Jody Avergan here. Before we get going, I wanted to tell you that we're doing a number of live events this fall. We'll be in Chicago on October 7th to premiere a new episode from our upcoming season, then in Toronto on November 3rd as part of the Hot Docs Podcast Festival. And we're also planning a few other live shows for this fall as well in New York and elsewhere. So go to 30for30podcast.com slash events for more information and hopefully we'll see you in person. From ESPN Films and ESPN Audio, you're listening to 30 for 30 Plus. My name is Jody Avergan. This is our series of bonus podcasts in between seasons where we have conversations with filmmakers about some recent 30 for 30 films. Our new season of audio documentaries, by the way, is arriving on October 16th. But this week, we explore the life and death of a superstar linebacker. Let's hear it for Junior Sam. Junior's career stats were amazing. 56 sacks, 18 interceptions, 12-time Pro Bowl. Over 1,500 tackles. But then whenever they talk about stats with Junior, I think, so what? Stats don't tell Junior's story. Junior Seau had a two-decade career in the NFL. Most of those years, he played for the Chargers in San Diego, where he was a beloved hometown idol. Seau retired from the league in 2010, but just two years later, football fans were shocked by some devastating news. Police have responded a few minutes ago to a shooting at the home of Junior Seau. There are reports that Seau committed suicide. This is just a shocking story. Seau was 43. An autopsy later revealed that he suffered from a degenerative brain disease, CTE. His death shed light on what was then a relatively taboo topic, the effect of repeated head injuries on the long-term health of football players. Because of who he was, not just Hall of Fame great, but how beloved he was, Junior's suicide was a particular flashpoint. Kirby Bradley is here. He's the director of the new film, Seau. Welcome to the studio. Congratulations on the film, and thanks for, thanks for having this chat. Thanks for having me on. So in the film, right off the bat, you don't try and hide where it ends up. We begin by understanding that Junior Seau kills himself, and then you cut back and show us kind of the the arc of his life. Well, why don't we start there? Do you want to do you want to talk about that choice to 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 start and tell us where it ends up, and then cut backwards? Yeah, it's hard to know how to do that, but um, we felt with Junior, he was well. Clearly, he's the most famous NFL player to have committed suicide. There have been a few of them, but yeah. he's the most famous. And we just felt that most people already knew that. So to try to get cued and hide it until later in the film and build up to a surprise with, that really wasn't going to be a surprise didn't make much sense. Yeah. So uh, we, we chose to just like address it right off the bat. And this is a tough film to watch. I don't think I'm saying anything that surprising to you. There's also just moments of just you know joy and it's a compelling film. I, was it a tough film to make? I don't even know if that's the right way to phrase the question. <laughs> Was it a sad film yeah. to make? Yeah, in many ways. I mean, throughout the process, something that really came through was just how good Junior made people feel. It's my man, Chicken. Show the camera your muscle. Show the camera your muscle. Yeah. While Junior was great on the field, he had a unique ability to connect with people off the field in a way that was just as powerful as his play on the field. It's like everyone was his best friend. Ben, how you doing, my man? Nice seeing you here. You doing all right? 
in a way it was frustrating because this doesn't come off on the screen as powerfully as it did in real life. Outside of Muhammad Ali, hmm. I think Junior is the sports figure that I feel impacted people that way, smiling at you and just making you feel like you're the most important person in his world, that charisma. It was amazing. Called everyone buddy. Yeah. Buddy, what are you doing? Yeah, he walked in the room, buddy! Buddy! Buddy, what's up? Buddy! Can you give you a hug? Come on, buddy! And if you're a buddy, you're a part of the family. And people will tell you that half the time that was because he couldn't remember their name. <laughs> but um, good at trick. the same time, it was definitely a term of affection for him. Yeah. And yeah, he just made people feel good. Mm -hmm. And that was genuine. I think it was just the fact that he loved people. He wanted people to know that he was grateful and he was humble enough to always give his all in every aspect of his life. So there was always that throughout the film. But yes, then... Yeah, the way he was at the end was not, it was, it was hard, a lot of it. So there were definitely parts of um, the positive parts of his life, uh, the first chapters of his life that I didn't know. Whenever you're talking about an NFL athlete or any pro athlete, they are incredibly motivated people, but he f almost seemed like he was cutting above even that crowd. Well, I think there was a natural love of sports and love of football. I mean, he loved playing so much he loved it so much that he loved practicing most players practice as a, you know, mm -hmm. a means to an end he loved practice just as much as he loved the games because that's where he got better and that's where he knew that you know he could improve well coaches say this all the time as uh, to try and motivate their team like practice should be harder than the games and you know you kind of understand why coaches say that and then you realize like players probably don't totally buy that i've been on both sides of that equation um it really did seem like Junior Seau was more committed to practicing yeah. harder than he, he played. He said, that's, where, that's what they pay us for. You know, the game is a bonus. They pay the salaries for the practice. But he was also really motivated by his family. He grew up in really poor circumstances. He lived in the Samoan community in San Diego. His parents had come from Samoa. And they didn't have much money. Um, you know, we say in the film, he lived in the garage with his brothers because they didn't have enough bedrooms at the time. And it was, it was a struggle. My grandfather worked very hard putting food on the table. And sometimes it wasn't very much, but my dad learned that being in a Samoan community, everybody's working and doing something to help out. Everything was an opportunity to get better. Every commercial, 15, 20 push-ups, next commercial, 15 or 20 sit-ups. His drive was to get mom and dad out of the neighborhood. He wanted to get them out. You know, I, I wanted to win for mom and dad. And he knew that if he were able to make it to the NFL, that he'd be able to provide them with things that they never had otherwise. You sometimes get the sense that a lot of these hyper-motivated athletes, there's a anger or a chip on their shoulder. Was that an element for Junior? Because a lot of what you were just describing felt more kind of joyous. Well, it's an interesting question. I'll answer it this way. They're both there. Because with Junior, I think with every NFL player, there's an element of violence in that man's character. Um, and when you watch Junior run down a quarterback and or you know nail a, a running back and commit this vicious tackle, you see it. But then instantly you would see Junior jump up and do that little dance he did and that mm -hmm. fist pump that he did and the big smile and just you know hug people that then the joy took over 
Um, so they're both there. But um, there was, yeah, there's an anger. There's a, there's a violent nature in, in junior sale, just the way there is in any NFL player who succeeds. Coming up, we'll hear how Junior Seau's death reverberated throughout the football world and what the future of football looks like in the era of CTE. If you're not feeling any kind of pain or any kind of injury, you aren't playing football. A human being wasn't made to run full speed, smash each other in the head, Go back to your huddle and say, all right, we got 60 more plays to do this. But that's the game. There's still a lot we have to learn about CTE and brain injuries in football, but there is some at this point in time common understanding that there's at least a connection between head injuries and football, and we discuss it openly. When Junior was playing, not that long ago, how did people talk about brain injuries in the locker room or in the broadcast booth or just yeah. in the larger football ecosystem? Well, back then it was, you got your bell rung. Yeah. You know, you, you got woozy and you got to walk it off. Um, they'd sit you down and clear your head for a little while. They'd literally hold up fingers and ask, how many fingers am I holding up? Like that would be some sort of demonstration that you're okay. The, the feeling was, is okay, if you're clear now, if you have shaken it off and you feel like you, you're, all, you're okay, then you're okay. Concussion is an invisible injury. It's really hard for people to understand because almost everybody who gets one appears to get better. When I hit somebody and the entire stadium is spinning around and I'm stumbling, I just thought, okay, shake it off, get back on the field and play. I mean, I remember getting a concussion and I didn't tell anybody. It's the warrior mentality. You, you just played. And there was no thought whatsoever to what kind of long-term damage. Um, what we know now is that if you suffer a concussion, that over the next few days and two or three weeks, you are at extreme risk of suffering a second concussion that can cause really severe damage. And so that's why there's so much attention now paid to if you've got a concussion, you've got to go through the protocol and wait and so forth. Well, there's none of that then. Yeah. Um, partly because it, the knowledge wasn't just there, but there was also no... There was no incentive for anybody, team doctors, teams, owners, anybody to to pay attention to this because all it meant was your players would be off the field when otherwise they'd be out there helping you. But do you think there was something about the particular way that Junior Seau played that made him more at risk for brain injury? Well, ju- yes, just be, it's the law of physics because he, he was so fast and he would tackle so viciously. Um, he was so adept at being able to target a player and you know, chase him down, or or be able to sense where he was going. That the collisions were often incredibly violent. So yes, by by extrapolation, you know that a lot of those hits caused a lot of damage. Concussions happened quite frequently, and I had no idea. I had no idea the severity of them. There were some really bad ones that I recall when he would come home after a game, or after practice even, and just say my head is on fire and junior played 20 years in the yeah. nfl he had never once was diagnosed with a concussion <laughs> that doesn't mean he didn't have a concussion sure it just means that the awareness at that time was such that they didn't do that but there is a moment where uh i mean you could tell us how uh 
the former Major League Soccer player Taylor Twelman kind of fits into this story. But there's a moment where he recounts the story with of Junior Seau telling him, I've had a headache for 15 years. So there was some knowledge there that this is an ongoing presence in my life. It's not just you get your bell rung, you clear your head the next day, you come back. Yeah. In 2008, uh, this was just after Junior had lost the Super Bowl with the Patriots after that undefeated season up till then. And he lived in the same apartment building with a former soccer player, most valuable player, Taylor Twelman. So about every two weeks, we'd get together, grab a bite to eat, uh, talk about everything and anything. After the Super Bowl, a few weeks after, they had dinner. And Taylor had suffered a concussion that he had long-term effects, so it just wouldn't go away. And I said, I, Junior, I gotta be honest with you, I can't shake the headaches, the dizziness, the vertigo, the double vision. And he was revealing this to Junior. I'll never forget this. Um, he looked at me and he said, buddy, I've had a headache since I was 15. He then went on to talk about all of the, what we now know as classic long-term effects of concussions. Headaches that wouldn't go away, blurred vision, um, you know, going back into games when he shouldn't have. He talked for a solid hour, hour and a half. It didn't mean anything to me at the time. But as I've got older, and now here we are, uh, there's part of me that wonders if Junior was, in a weird way, asking for help. In 2008, the beginning of the understanding of CTE, that was starting to be put together. So I'm sure that Junior had a little bit of that knowledge. If a person has CTE, you'll have problems with memory. Then you'll have mood disorders. That's primarily led by depression. We frequently see that. We see anxiety. Um, and then you also see behavioral problems, sometimes aggressive behavior, sometimes violence. We don't know precisely how he felt about all of that, but it did seem that he had some awareness of his own situation, and we can only speculate, but he may have been wondering what impact that was having on him as well. Well, I thought the, the way that you showed Junior kind of recognizing these signs in himself was perhaps the most powerful part of this whole film. And a lot of that is animated through these journals that you got your hands mm -hmm. on. So both as a filmmaker, what was it like to come across these journals, but then as an understanding of the story, what particular thing did those journals illuminate? Well, the journals were really key because Junior did not show weakness. He did not show vulnerability. He did not open up, he did not open up even to those close to him. So he had all of these, these feelings of fear and failure and regret um, in his life that he would write in his journals. The longer I am alone, the more I push away. I bandage everything with a false feeling of enjoyment and people I do not care for. I feel life has nothing to grasp. That's where we learn that even though this is the guy that was always out making people feel good, making you know good times, a lot of that he felt really terrible about. He felt he was doing that out of obligation, that those people were using him because he was a famous guy. He was a guy who would buy you know, the rounds of drinks and the, and the meals and dinners. I'm going out and my friends are using me even more because they know that I'll give them a great time. I have to stay home and find friends who care. But then he would also write about as his depression took over more and more, he would write about that as he started to behave in, in worse and worse ways, infidelity, drug abuse, gambling, he would write about that. Yeah, I mean, he, he could sense that something was wrong and he was frustrated about why he acted the way he did. Um, Junior Seau was not a perfect guy. I mean, I think that 
he, like anybody, had flaws. Some of those flaws may have existed, you know, without the CTE, but I think it's reasonable to say that the CTE impact, it, it accentuated that. It made him, um, made it harder for him to deal with a lot of things than he might have otherwise. The other element that really elevates kind of an understanding of Junior as a person, but then his later part of his life is the interviews with his kids. Um, what was it like to talk to his kids? And I mean, how difficult was it to talk to his kids? Well, surprisingly, it was not that difficult. I mean, I, I spoke to Sidney Sale first when I wanted to do the film, his daughter, Sydney. And so I had lunch with her and explained what I was hoping to do. And then she put me in touch with Gina, her mom. And then Gina put me in touch with Jake and, and Hunter and, and eventually Tyler. And they all actually were pretty eager to talk. They just wanted to know that this was going to be a complete film and a fair film. But they, they want the story of their father out there. That's not to say it was easy to tell the parts of the story where the relationship had gone bad. Towards the end, he would sometimes leave for or disappear for a few months. I actually wrote him the long letter, just kind of laying everything out. Like, do you not care? Do you not love me? I was just sobbing, crying, and while I was crying, he looked at me and said, Honey, I just, I just don't know how to love. I don't know how to feel it. I knew something was wrong. And, yeah, that was difficult, you know, to hear them and to sit across from them while they're recounting how their father is ignoring them, is um, making them feel unimportant, in Jake's case, hitting him yeah. twice. After that, things were, um, things were never the same. We never resolved it. We never spoke about it. It really severed our ties. So for them to, to go on camera and discuss those moments, I have a great deal of respect for them because it was a really courageous act. And it seemed like the the process of making the film, along with what the kids saw in the journals that was a glimpse into their father's life that they didn't have before, I mean, they're actively learning about their father as well as viewers of the film. Yeah, it's interesting. Even though the journals had been published, when I asked Jake if he would read them during his interview, I don't think he had read them before. And um, for him to hear those words, it was really impactful for him. I need to be a better father to my kids. I need to be honest with the person I love. And it was hard for him because those are the words that he wanted to hear from his dad right. in a lot of cases. To hear that his acknowledgement of those, of those things is um, it's difficult. We deserved more. And then to see that he had written them down on paper, but was unwilling or unable to tell him that kind of stuff, uh, to reveal that, you know, to admit that he was struggling. Um, that was hard for him to know. I think it's Bob Costas in the film who says that Junior's death really was a tipping point in terms of the CTE conversation. Do you agree? I think so. I, I do agree with Bob because by far, Junior was the most famous player to have something like this happen to. And that coupled with what kind of person he was, he probably would have been voted the NFL player least likely to commit suicide during his career. So to have this happen so soon after he retired, just basically two and a half years after he retired, it was a shock. And so for that to happen 
I think it really shone a bright light on CTE in a way that, you know, just didn't happen before. It was sort of that thought, if this can happen to Junior Seau, it can really happen to anyone. There was a period of time when the NFL was in denial. They really had to do something to address this. These guys who are supposed to have it all don't want to live. What's going on and what are we doing wrong? And how, you know, and how do we help them? The headaches that I get, pretty much unbearable sometimes. And the thought of dying is almost better than the pain of a headache that, that I get. So that makes it scary. If it were up to you, what changes would you make to football? As somebody who loves the game, that's a really hard question because I I acknowledge that when I watch a game, some percentage of those players, whether it's 5% or 40%, will suffer some really serious problems later in their life due to the game that I'm watching. And a big part of the attraction to the game is the violence. We don't like to say that, right. but that's really true. But we yeah. used to say that pretty We used openly. to say that. Yeah. We used to make videos of, yeah. of all the most like vicious, severe hits possible. Well, they've dialed that back now, but there's no question that when you're watching a game, that when there's a big hit like that, that's when the crowd really mm-hmm. goes wild. It's obvious. So I don't know how to react to that. What I would say, though, is from the player's point of view, I think it's imperative that they be educated about every piece of scientific information that's out there and then allow them to make their choice. But we are starting to see some football players retire early. I would imagine there's some top athletes, the 13-year-olds, the 14-year-olds now, who are choosing a different sport instead. I think it's reasonable to speculate that over the next decade or two, there will be some families who don't allow their sons to play football because of this issue. I think that those numbers will stay relatively low. As fans, I think we underestimate their connection to this game and their drive and their love of the game. The rush that you feel being part of a team, running out onto a field in a stadium full of people. And so if you're asking a 23-year-old player who would have to give up millions of dollars um, and that feeling because something may happen to him 30 years from now, most of them aren't going to do that. I totally understand what you're saying. And I think at some level, if someone has something that they are one of the best in the world at, then they should have the right to do it. But there are other sports. There are other places where top athletes can go. And so somewhere in that line, I get a little uncomfortable with this football exceptionalism that you hear sometimes in response to this conversation. Well, and you bring up a good point in a roundabout way, football exceptionalism I think it's important at some point to state that football is not the only sport that causes CTE. Well, that's true, too. Either. Yeah. Um, and players who are physically suited to football don't always, aren't always physically suited for other sports. So I think that's a tall order. I mean, the most radical response to this would be to just change football considerably and say it's basically flag football. That's, that's never going to happen. I mean, I think where we're headed is to a future where okay, everybody's starting to admit that we know this game causes problems. And in the same way, we we already know 
that when you play, you stand a significant chance of needing joint replacements. Yeah. It, we know that. And, and players, they're fine with that. I think we're going to be the same way with head injuries. What we're finding more and more is that it's even the sub-concussive hits, in other words, the small hits that happen routinely on every play, linemen hitting each other in, a, in a, just a normal, conventional block. Um, it seems that the more information we get, the more we're realizing that all of those hits add up to something larger. And as long as the knowledge is there and everyone acknowledges the risk, okay, we know the risk, we're still going to play. You know, when, when I'm done and, and uh, I hang up my helmet and I look back at it, I'd probably say, I, you were a fool. But right now, it, playing with pain for Junior is a must. I think that's what's going to end up happening. The vast majority of football players will still play football. Kirby Bradley is the director of the new 30 for 30 film, Saya. It's available exclusively within the ESPN app on our new streaming service, ESPN Plus. Sign up for ESPN Plus now and enjoy a seven-day free trial. We've included a link to watch the film in the description of this episode. This episode was produced by Nina Ernest with help from Ryan Nantel, Vin D'Anton, Paul Williard, Aaron Leiden, and Jennifer Thorpe. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more 30 for 30.